This morning we went through the book of Acts, uh, some, you know, basically chapters 3 through 9, really kind of briefly as a summary, and we talked about some of the recurring themes that emerge with the, the conflicts that the church faces. Some of those conflicts are internal things, and some of those conflicts are external, and with each of them, usually with divine help, the church is able to overcome uh, what, uh, what the, the conflict is, or are able to overcome the problem. And one of the things that you'll also note is that Almost every time after one of these conflicts, there's going to be a verse that will talk about, and the disciples kept increasing, or, and the number kept growing. And so it's fascinating that not only do they overcome the conflicts, but they actually are able to grow from them. And so it's a remarkable thing, but one passage that we didn't really spend a lot of time talking about, other than a brief reference to it, was pretty much all of chapter 7. All of chapter 7 is a sermon that is uh, preached by Stephen. And so what I thought we could do tonight is uh, spend a little bit of time talking about Acts chapter 7 and looking at this sermon, looking at what some of his major points were and some of the things that we could learn about that uh, today. So if you look at Acts, uh, starting in chapter 6, Stephen is one of those seven guys who is cho chosen to help make sure that all of the widows get fed. So you remember the church is having a problem because... The Hellenistic widows are being overlooked, uh, but the native Jewish widows are being fed, and that's a problem. That's a problem of prejudice, and that's a problem that if you're eventually going to have a Gentile mission, you can't be having problems like that already. And so in order to understand that the gospel is about uniting the whole world into one saved community of God, uh, you have to start solving these problems pretty quickly. And so the church gets seven men who we are told that are full of the Holy Spirit, men of good reputation, men who uh, are, are devout in what they do and in faithfulness, and they're chosen to help solve this problem. And, and from what we understand, they do. They do a good job with it. But several of them we learn more about uh, after this point. Uh, we learn more about Stephen right here. And then in chapter 8, you learn more about Philip and uh, his uh, mission work in Samaria. And he's the one who eventually converts the uh, Ethiopian eunuch. But Stephen has an interesting story of his own. Stephen, after uh, working with the widows, he begins to teach and to preach. And he does so in such a way that some controversy arises. He teaches in the synagogues, and he's using the scriptures to teach about Jesus. And so some of the great debaters of the age, they get there with him, and they try to, to respond to him, and they try to contradict him. And as they do so, they begin to realize that they can't. He's actually pretty talented at what he's doing. In fact, if you look at Acts chapter 6 and verse 10... It says, uh, but they were unable to cope with the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. And so as Stephen is, is teaching and is uh, debating and arguing, uh, they realize they don't have answers to him. And so what are they going to do? How are they going to stand for what they think is truth against someone that they think is teaching error when the guy that they keep trying to contradict keeps proving them wrong. Um, well, sadly, kind of like Ananias and Sapphira eventually turned to deception, it seems like that's what uh, these, these Jews at this synagogue are going to be doing also. If you look at verse 11, this is the plan that they come up with. It says, They secretly induced men to say, we have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and against God. All right, so they're going to start leveling charges against him. He speaks blasphemy against Moses and against God. Uh, then notice that that's not the only charge. They're going to add some to it. Verse 12 uh, through 14 says, 
And they stirred up the people, the elders and the scribes, and they came up to him and they dragged him away and brought him before the council. And they put forward false witnesses who said, this man incessantly speaks against the holy place or this holy place and the law. For we have heard him say that this Nazarene, Jesus, will destroy this place and alter the customs which Moses has handed down to us. And fixing their gaze on him, all who were sitting in the council saw his face like, an, uh, like the face of an angel. Okay, so this is kind of interesting. And these charges that they lay against Stephen are important for understanding his words that are going to come next. All of chapter 7 is his response to these charges. And he gives one of the lengthiest sermons you'll read uh, in, in, in Acts. Uh, and uh, it's one of the lengthier ones you'll read in the Bible. Not, not the lengthiest, but it's, it's, it's a bigger one. And uh, so what he's going to do is he's going to basically summarize the whole story of Israel and summarize the Old Testament story in such a way that does not speak against Moses and that does not speak against the law and certainly doesn't blaspheme God, but actually honors those things while giving a critique of those who are listening to him. So we'll, we'll see how he does that in a minute. But before we begin looking at his sermon, notice verse 11, two accusations that are mentioned. He speaks blasphemous words against Moses and against God. I think both of those are false charges. Uh, I mean, in, in his sermon, you'll see he really doesn't speak anything against Moses, and he certainly doesn't speak against God. Then you get to verse 13. Uh, they say he speaks against this holy place and the law. I don't think he speaks anything against the law. I'd be shocked if he did that. Speaking against this holy place, that's a more interesting one. Uh, that's one that I think is going to be more open to interpretation as to whether or not he's speaking against it or not. Because when they talk about speaking against this holy place, they're talking about the temple. And specifically what they say that he says is in verse 14, that the Nazarene, Jesus, will destroy this place. I doubt he said that. Uh, in fact, I mean, these people are called false witnesses. So we know that something that they're saying is not going to be true. But I'm curious... With the message that he speaks about the temple, he might say the temple will be destroyed. I doubt he says Jesus will destroy the temple, but he probably has said something about the temple's destruction because even in his sermon, he's going to clarify what his position on the temple is. His position on the temple is that it's unnecessary. So some people will see that as speaking against the temple. So maybe that one is, is up for debate. Uh, it's closer, I guess you could say. Uh, but then it says, and he will alter the customs which Moses had handed down to us. And that one also is probably a little closer to, to truth. Uh, now, that word alter right there, it could be translated as like transform or change. That's the way that it's translated in other places. And uh, there are some ways when where the, uh, the teachings of... Jesus do seem to alter the law of Moses. I don't think they do so by, by breaking the law of Moses or dishonoring the law of Moses. In fact, I think Jesus and Paul, I mean, you read what they say, they seem to uphold the law. They, Jesus says things like, uh, um, you know, I didn't come to abolish the law and the prophets, but to fulfill them. And, and Paul says, no, on the contrary, we uphold the law. Like, Paul's not against the law per se, but I do believe that they're against certain interpretations of the law, and those are some of the dominant interpretations that they're dealing with. I think he's going to alter some of the customs because he's going to have a new way of reading scriptures. He's going to have a new way of reading the law. In fact, as you read through Paul, for example, Paul will say things like, 
circumcision nor un- neither circumcision nor uncircumcision is anything uh, but new creation. That, that sounds different than what Moses said, right? <laughs> circumcision and uncircumcision, they're, they're nothing. Uh, because, you know, if you read the law of Moses, it sounds like circumcision is really important. But how does Paul justify that? He doesn't just justify it by saying, Jesus said this and this, that settles the matter. In fact, he, we don't have any words of Jesus necessarily on circumcision uh, specifically. But what he'll say is that, you know, read the law carefully. When was Abraham justified? Before or after his circumcision? He's going to say Abraham was justified by his faith even before circumcision. So that tells me even in the law, you can find justification by faith apart from circumcision. That's kind of important. Uh, like Paul is arguing a different take, but he's still using the law of Moses to do it. And you'll see him do that throughout. I mean, that's why he quotes the law of Moses so much. It's not because he dishonors it and speaks against it. He actually thinks it's kind of important, but he has a new way of reading it. And uh, so most of the time that you read sermons and acts, they're heavily rooted in teaching the Old Testament. I mean, the Old Testament is the Bible of the church at this point. Uh, You know, Paul couldn't, like, like Stephen right here isn't going to be able to open up to the book of Romans and say, well, let's read this. And even if he did, the, the, uh, the people listening probably wouldn't care all that much what Romans says. But he can use the Torah, and that's what he's going to use over and over and over again in this sermon. And so I don't think he speaks against the law. I do think he'll use the law over and over and over again to, to support what he teaches. But he's going to do so in a way that perhaps people haven't really seen much before. And so that's one of the interesting ways uh, that, uh, that early Christianity used the, the law of Moses, uh, but they do so in a way that is, that is different. And Paul does say that it's not the law of Moses or works of law that will make you justified before God. He's clear about that. He doesn't say that the law of Moses is therefore bad or anything like that, but the law of Moses is not our foundation for justification. Faith in Jesus is our foundation for justification, and that's something Jew and Gentile have in common right there. And so for a unifying effort like this, um, the law of Moses can be divisive if interpreted in a divisive way, or it can be something that produces faith and unity in the church, and that's what Paul is trying to do. As we get here with Stephen, these accusations that he's going to alter the customs for Moses, he probably will. Not by speaking against the law, but by teaching a new way of thinking about the law in a different way of interpreting and applying the law. Anyway, so these are the accusations. Speaks against Moses, I don't think that's true. Speaks against the law, I don't think that's true. Speaks against God, I certainly don't think that's true. Speaks against this holy place, Maybe, maybe there's some room for argument there. And then uh, altering the customs of Moses, maybe room for some argument there. But uh, those, are, those are at least closer to, to what he's doing. Then when you get to chapter 7, the high priest says to him, are these things so? So now he gets his chance to defend himself and to say, this is basically what, I, what I'm saying. Um, this sermon is going to answer each of these charges that's leveled against him. And he's going to do so by telling a story. And he says, let's start all the way back at Genesis. Let's start with Abraham. And uh, this is going to kind of walk through Genesis and then Exodus and uh, even the rest of the Torah. Then he'll jump forward to David a little bit. But he's going to retell the story of the Old Testament. If you want uh, the Reader's Digest version, the summarization, an inspired summary of uh, the, the Old Testament story, 
that's a pretty good place to get one. You get a scripture-inspired, uh, you know, quick reading of the Old Testament. And that's what Stephen's going to give us. Uh, he's going to quote the Old Testament quite a bit throughout this. The first bunch of quotations all come from Genesis, and then the next bunch all come from Exodus. And then he starts choosing some other places uh, that, uh, that will fit um, his needs. But let's kind of make our way through it and, uh, and see what some of the main points that he makes are. It ends up being an interesting sermon. So verse 2, he says... Men, brethren, and fathers, hear me. Um, The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia before he lived in Haran. And he said to him, leave your country and your relatives and come into the land that I will show you. So he starts off saying, we're going to begin in Genesis 12. And uh, we're going to begin with the call of Abraham. And we're going to see how this goes. Uh, He very quickly summarizes the story of Abraham. Abraham basically makes a promise. God makes a promise to Abraham that the land that they are standing in right there while he's speaking, God is promising it to Abraham. But it's not his quite yet. Something's going to happen first. There's going to be uh, foreign powers that enslave and that oppress God's people. And someone will have to deliver them from that. And then they'll receive the land. But right now the land is being promised to Abraham. The story continues. Uh, you get to verse 8. It says, and he gave him the covenant of circumcision. God gave that to Abraham. So that Abraham became the father of Isaac and circumcised him on the eighth day. And Isaac became the father of Jacob and Jacob of the 12 patriarchs. But then notice verse 9. This is important. The patriarchs became jealous of Joseph and sold him into Egypt. Yet God was with him and rescued him from all his afflictions. So I believe right there, is going to be the first appearance of Stephen's main point in this sermon. God was with Joseph, and yet the 12 patriarchs, his brothers, rejected him, and they sold him into slavery, but God was still with him. You had someone who God was with who was rejected, and he was sold into slavery, he was mistreated, he was abused, and yet God stayed with him, and God used the abuse and the mistreatment of Joseph ultimately to bring about the salvation of his family. See, the ones who abused and mistreated him and sold him off into slavery, they ended up facing a drought. And the only place that had grain stored up during the drought, it was because of Joseph's ability to interpret dreams, was Egypt. And so his brothers who were in Canaan had to go down to Egypt for food. And guess who provided them food? It was Joseph. So the one who was mistreated was sold off into slavery. But because he was sold off into slavery, he was able to establish a program that would bring about the salvation of those who sold him into slavery. And so they have him being rejected, yet he still becomes the one who delivers them. I'll just give you the spoiler right now. These are all going to be pictures of Jesus and the story of what happened with Jesus in the Gospel of Luke. Jesus is the one who these people have rejected, and yet Jesus ultimately, because of their rejection and through their rejection and his death on the cross, becomes their means of deliverance and salvation. Uh, Right now, he's just going to walk through the Old Testament. But isn't it fascinating how easily you could read the story of Joseph 
if you weren't a Christian and you hadn't heard of Jesus, uh, without seeing a striking parallel between his story and the story of Jesus. You have the rejection of someone by his own people, and yet through that rejection, God brings about the salvation of those who rejected him. That's the story of Jesus coming to his people. They reject him, yet through their rejection and through the cross, he's able to offer salvation to those. That's going to be the story that we find repeated in this sermon. The first example of it is Joseph. And so Joseph becomes this example, and uh, his whole family ends up going down to Egypt for safety. And they end up finding a home there. And God ends up blessing them there so that they grow and they multiply and great things happen for them. But then when you get to uh, verse 18, now we are moving from Genesis story into the Exodus story. The first chapter of Exodus says, there arose another king over Egypt who knew nothing about Joseph. So now there's a new king in town, and he sees this huge group of foreigners, but he doesn't know who they are, and he doesn't know the promises made to Joseph, and he doesn't have any connection to Joseph. He just sees a big group of foreigners. And, I mean, the way most nations act, when you have a lot of foreigners in the land, people tend to act with suspicion about foreigners, and that's what this king does. And the fascinating thing is his suspicion and his fear about these foreigners starts to drive him to do like horribly immoral things, even though these foreigners hadn't done anything. Like the, it's not like they had gone around and caused a bunch of problems and been committing crimes and, and you know, burning down their cities or anything. They were just living there, and he thought, you know, if they're not truly loyal to us, if we ever get into a battle or a war with someone, they might join up with our enemies, and then they'd be able to outnumber us, and they'd already be within the land. That would be a real problem. So we need to do something to begin to subjugate these people and to, to thin out their numbers and to take away their power. So the way he thins out their numbers is by having their babies killed. He starts killing the male newborn children. And by uh, taking away their power, he has them enslaved. And so he ends up with this massive group of slaves and these parents who are mourning the loss of their children. He begins doing some of the worst things imaginable. And in those horrible, tumultuous circumstances, someone is born. Moses. Moses appears to be a beautiful child. He's loved by his parents, and they are unwilling to let that horrible fate befall him. So they hide him for three months. And uh, you can, you can, you know, J Stephen is summarizing the story. Uh, you can look at verse 20. It was at this time that Moses was born, and he was lovely in the sight of the Lord, and he was nurtured three months in his father's home. And after he had been set outside, Pharaoh's daughter took him away and nurtured him as her own son. So now you have Moses growing up in not just in Egypt, but actually in the home of Pharaoh himself. And Moses, in verse 22, he was educated in all the learning of the Egyptians, and he was a man of power in words and in deeds. But when he was approaching the age of 40, something happened. Moses decided he wanted to be a deliverer. And uh, he ends up going back to seeing his own people, and he notices something while he's there. One of those Egyptian masters is beating an Israelite. And so Moses is going to deliver him. He's going to save the day. He's going to stand up for his people. And so he fights the Egyptian and he kills the Egyptian. And he thinks that he's done something good here. He thinks he's, he has started. Uh, you can look at verse 25. After killing the Egyptian, it says, And Moses supposed that his brethren understood that God was granting them deliverance through him. But notice the next verse. But they did not understand. And so he comes to be a deliverer for the people. And what do they do? They don't understand. And the next day he shows up and he sees two Israelites fighting. 
And he says, you know, guys, quit, quit fighting each other. You guys are brothers. And they say, verse 27, but the one who was injuring his neighbor pushed Moses away, saying, who made you a ruler and a judge over us? Do you mean to kill me as you killed the Egyptian yesterday? So a couple of things happen there. One is he's trying to help bring reconciliation and deliverance to his people, and they flat out reject him for it. And they say, who made you ruler over us? Rejecting the idea that he is ruler over them. And they also bring up the fact that he killed the Egyptian, which if word about that gets out, uh, the Egyptian rulers aren't going to take too kindly to it. So Moses realizes that he's going to be wanted for murder. He also recognizes that the people he's coming to save are rejecting him. Remember Joseph. Joseph's brothers rejected him, and because they rejected him, he ended up in Egypt and ended up being their, their source of salvation. Now the people are in Egypt, and they're in desperate need, and there's someone else who's coming to be a redeemer, someone to rescue them, a deliverer, and they reject his first attempt at that. So he goes off to Midian. He becomes this, uh, this shepherd. He works out there. He gets married. He starts a family. He lives with his father-in-law, and, and life is going on for about another 40 years until this burning bush begins to speak, and he is called back to go and try a second time to be a deliverer, and God promises to be with him through all of this, and so God has heard the cries of the people. He calls Moses to go rescue them. If you look at verse 34, this is, again, this is a quotation from Exodus. This is God speaking from the burning bush. And he says, I have certainly seen the oppression of my people in Egypt and have heard their groans, and I have come down to rescue them. Come now, and I will send you to Egypt. So they are going to be rescued, and God is sending Moses to do that. But then, notice verse 35. This Moses... Whom they disowned, that, that's the first time he tried to be their deliverer. They disowned him. This Moses, the one they disowned, saying, who made you a ruler and a judge, is the one whom God sent both to be a ruler and a deliverer with, uh, with the help of the angel who appeared to him in the thorn bush. Verse 36, this man led them out, performing wonders and signs in the land of Egypt and in the Red Sea and in the wilderness for 40 years. By the way, Moses is coming again to be their deliverer, and he's performing wonders and signs. If you uh, look back at Acts chapter 2, and we learn about Jesus in verse 22 of Acts 2, it says, Men of Israel, listen to these words. Jesus the Nazarene, a man attested to you by God with miracles and wonders and signs which God performed through him. Here you have a deliverer who's performing wonders and signs, kind of like Jesus was a deliverer who was performing wonders and signs. And in the same way that Jesus was able to free us from the slavery of darkness and sin, Moses is able to give them freedom out of Egypt. And yet, what do they do as soon as Moses gives them this freedom? Look at verse 39. Our fathers were unwilling to be obedient to him but repudiated him in their hearts and in, turned back, and in their hearts turned back to Egypt. What he's saying is Moses actually led them out of Egypt and he was going to lead them to the promised land, but in their hearts, they rejected him. Notice how this is something with their heart. Their heart is an issue here. And in their hearts, they turned back to Egypt. 
So they were rejecting the deliverance that God had before them because they'd rather go back to the slavery that formerly held them captive. Uh, they, they questioned, you know, verse 40, they were saying to Aaron, make for us gods who will go before us. Uh, for this Moses who led us out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what happened to him. By the way, let's just take a brief moment and remember, what were those charges against Stephen? Um, he spoke blasphemous words against Moses and against God. So far, Stephen hasn't said a single thing negative about Moses, but you know who has? The Israel in their history, the people who were following him in the wilderness, the people who were slaves in Egypt. They've said blasphemous things against Moses. He says, and against God. Well, so far, Stephen hasn't said a single thing that's bad about God, but you know what the children of Israel did? They chose a different God. They said, we don't want him to be our God. Let's, let's have Aaron make us a God right now. Let's worship the gods in Egypt. In fact, while they're in the wilderness, look at uh, verse uh, 43 says, you also took along the tabernacle of Molech. Like when they're in the wilderness, they're bringing pagan gods with them. And the star of the god Rumpha and the images which you made to worship. And God says, so I will remove you beyond Babylon. Uh, that's a quotation from the book of Amos, but it's saying, even in the wilderness, they weren't just rejecting Moses. They were worshiping idols and rejecting God. So the charges that they're bringing against Stephen, they're not true about Stephen, but they are true about their own forefathers and their own history. And, and you look at the other uh, accusations that are made, speaking against this holy place and the law. Well, as we'll see, the law was given to them, and they're the ones who not only spoke against the law, but actually in their actions rejected the law because they didn't follow it. And so the things that they are accusing Stephen of, he's pointing out, these are the very things that our fathers have been guilty of from the beginning. Uh, and so you keep reading uh, verse 44. He says, our fathers had the tabernacle of testimony in the wilderness. And just as he uh, who spoke to Moses directed him to make it according to the pattern uh, which he had seen in heaven, and having received it on their turn, our fathers brought it in with uh, Joshua upon dispossessing the nations whom God drove out before their fathers until the time of David. So he's talking about the, the tabernacle, which is the precursor to the temple. Uh, remember the accusation against the temple. He's about to address that one. He's already addressed... Moses and God and said, I haven't said anything against them, but our forefathers have. Uh, now he's about to give his position on this holy place, which he was said to have spoken against. And he says, God directed them to build the tabernacle. So again, he has no problem with the tabernacle. God directed them to build it. And they brought that through the wilderness. They even brought it into the promised land. And they used that until the time of David. But it was David, verse 46, who found favor in God's sight. Again, so he's not speaking bad against David, right? David found favor in God's sight. And he was asked that he might find a dwelling place for the God of Jacob. But it was Solomon who built a house for them. However, and this is where... He'll get the closest to, to being guilty of one of their charges. He doesn't speak against the house, but he does ultimately say it seems to be unnecessary. Verse 48, however, the Most High does not dwell in houses made with human hands. As the prophet says, he's going to quote Isaiah, heaven is my throne and the earth is the footstool for my feet. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord? Or what place uh, is there for my uh, repose? Was it not my hand which made all these things? So, so the idea is, and this is actually kind of an important idea. When God created the heavens and the earth, they seem to be intentionally created as a temple for God, as a dwelling place for God, where 
his, his footstool is the earth and his throne reaches into the heavens and, and you can see the glory of God all around. And so what kind of, what man can make a building and shrink a God down to fit him inside of it? There's no kind of house you can make for God. Granted, God was willing to allow him to do it. And, and the temple did come to be a place of, of special honor and significance. But from the beginning, the temple wasn't a necessary uh, construction project. And so when the temple is removed, the glory of God is not diminished by that at all. You're going to see the glory of God in all heaven and earth, which is where it should always be anyway. Uh, if you limit God to the temple, you're actually going to be doing something kind of dangerous. and You're going to be doing something that's, that's harmful to one's view of God. And so all of this is said, and in which uh, he begins to address each of the things uh, that they have accused him of. In fact, you get to verse 53. He says, and you received the law. Notice this final remark. You received the law as ordained by angels, yet did not keep it. And so remember, they accused him of, uh, in verse, chapter 6 and verse 13, this man speaks against the law. And he says, but you're the ones who got the law and you didn't even keep it. And they spoke against Moses, but it was your fathers who rejected Moses and, and repudiated him and rejected his deliverance and died in the wilderness. Well, you spoke against God. Well, it was your fathers who said they'd rather serve the gods of Egypt or the gods of the other nations around them. So all of these ways, Stephen is not in his, not himself, rejecting God or any of God's prophets or anything like that, but he's pointing out that this has been the history of the people who are accusing him of this. In fact, if you look at verse 51, this is kind of where he gets to what is the offensive conclusion of his lesson. Up to this point, he's just been talking about their forefathers, right? When you get to 51, he says, you men who are stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears are always resisting the Holy Spirit, and you are doing just what your fathers did. How are they doing just what their fathers did? You'll remember Joseph? They rejected him and sent him off into slavery, yet he ended up being their means of salvation. Uh, you remember Moses? He came there and they repudiated him once and he went off to Midian. Then he came back a second time and actually, actually delivered them from Egypt. And yet they still rejected him and turns to other gods and in their hearts turned back to Egypt and they built for them this temple that they think this temple is now going to be the thing that gives them the most significance but this temple is not even something that God needed and so it's like they feel like they have this special relationship because of a temple that's unnecessary even though their history is of rejecting God and of rejecting his prophets and then they have another prophet who comes along who's actually much mightier than a prophet and he is their true means of deliverance now and forever and that's Jesus their Messiah and they're following the exact same pattern when Jesus performs signs and wonders just like Moses did they still are finding ways to reject him when Jesus is their source of deliverance just like Joseph and Moses they're still finding ways to turn against him and they would rather turn to the temple rather than Jesus who offers us the actual truest presence of God on earth that there is so having said all of this it's interesting verse uh, 52 he says which one of the prophets did your fathers not persecute they killed those who had previously announced the coming of the righteous one, whose betrayers and murderers you have now become. You who received the law as ordained by angels, yet did not keep it. It says, by crucifying Jesus, you have fallen into the same pattern. The law and the prophets, they prophesied about this righteous one. He, he actually quotes one of those prophecies back in verse 37 about Moses, where Moses says, God will raise up for you a prophet like me. 
God's going to raise up a prophet like Moses. Moses is the one who was saving the people and yet was rejected. That's kind of how Jesus is the prophet like Moses. He's saving the people yet is rejected through that. He makes the point that you are the ones who are doing what you have accused me of doing because you're acting just like your forefathers. You are rejecting and killing your prophets now. The expression in verse 51, you who are stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ear. Uh, Stephen doesn't just make that up on the spot. Uh, that's, that's, that's a passage from the Old Testament that he's referring to right there. The idea of being stiff-necked is unwilling to to change your direction in anything. Uh, you're going to go forward with the views that you have, and no matter what evidence is presented, you're not going to turn to the right or to the left. You are stiff-necked, unwilling to change, like, like a horse that you can't get to turn. It's just stubborn, and the neck is stiff. And then he says, uncircumcised in heart. That's a really interesting expression, because they are circumcised. And they're going to make a big deal about the fact that they are, are circumcised, but their hearts remain uncircumcised their hearts and their ears remain disloyal to the God who is calling them. The passage that he's referring to goes all the way back to the book of Deuteronomy. Before entering the promised land, God is revealed to be uh, the, the special God who chose and loved Israel. Deuteronomy chapter 10 and verse 15 says, yet on your father's did the Lord set his affection and love, uh, to love them, and he chose their descendants after them, even you above all peoples, as it is to this day. Like God loved you and chose you to be his people. Verse 16, so circumcise your heart and stiffen your neck no longer. Circumcise your heart and don't stiffen your neck. That's what Israel was called to do before even entering into the promised land. And yet, what kind of life did they live in the promised land? One very often of uncircumcised heart and one very often of a stiff neck. And Stephen is saying, you're still doing that to this very day. Well, when they hear that, they're cut to the quick. Um, it's a similar expression to what is uh, said in Acts chapter 2, when Peter is ending his sermon and says, therefore God has made this Jesus both Lord and Christ, whom you crucified. And it says, when they heard this, they were cut to the heart, and they said, men and brethren, what must we do? And 3,000 people responded and were baptized that day. Very different reaction right here. Uh, right here, they are cut to the quick, but instead of responding with repentance, they respond with anger and violence, and they fulfill what Stephen has been saying about them all along. They have a prophet right in front of them, full of the Holy Spirit right in front of them, and they respond by dragging him out of the city, picking up stones, and murdering him. Um, as they do so, Stephen, the faithful martyr, imitates uh, the very words and actions of Jesus as he died on the cross. When you get to verse 59 and 60, the chapter ends, it says, And they went on stoning Stephen as he called on the Lord and said, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Um, as Jesus is dying on the cross, if you read Matthew and Mark, when Jesus is dying on the cross, he quotes a psalm. He quotes Psalm 22, 1, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? If you're reading Luke, remember Luke is the one that's part one of Acts. That's not the, a passage that he quotes. I'm not saying he doesn't quote that, but it's just Luke doesn't record that. Luke records him quoting a different passage. Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. That's also a quotation from the psalm. Psalm 31, verses 5 and 6. What you have is Jesus on the cross dying, saying, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Stephen, as he's dying, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Jesus offered his spirit to God 
Now Stephen is offering his spirit to his Lord, Jesus. And Jesus, also only in Luke, while dying on the cross, keeps uttering the words, Father, forgive them. They know not what they're doing. Stephen, as he's dying, says in verse 60, falling on his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. Having said this, he fell asleep. Stephen becomes the faithful uh, martyr who reenacts and imitates the death of Jesus. Martyrs from this point forward are supposed to mirror Stephen as Stephen mirrored Jesus, as Jesus was along the lines of his sermon in the, the path of these faithful martyrs. He's in that same tradition, whereas those stoning him are in the tradition of the brothers who sold Joseph into slavery, the children of Israel who rejected Moses in the wilderness. They are the ones who are continuing the story of rejection, whereas Jesus and Stephen are continuing the story of faithfulness while being rejected. Uh, that's a really important launching point for the mission that's about to go worldwide in the gospel of, uh, or in, in the book of Acts, as uh, you'll see in verse 8 and following, it's going to eventually hit Judea, Samaria, it's going to continue spreading on missionary journeys. Uh, death is going to become a part of the Christian story. Martyrdom will become a part of the Christian story. It will be those who reject the word of God versus those who die faithfully in honor of it. Um, it's a difficult challenge in charge that we are given but we as followers of Jesus are called to be those who ultimately suffer for the sake of Jesus. We're those who often are rejected. And we talked about those external problems. A lot of times you can't control those, but you can control your response to them. In Stephen's death, he loved to the very end. He wanted them not to be, the sin not to be charged against them, and he wanted to imitate Jesus through it all. And I think that's our call as well. Regardless of what direction culture takes, regardless of what direction uh, the world around us goes, what that may mean for us with respect to persecution or rejection or whatever, our call remains the same, to be faithful in spite of it, to love in spite of it, and to imitate Jesus always. Uh, if there's anyone here who would like to become a Christian, uh, would like the forgiveness of sins and the salvation offered by Jesus, uh, don't reject it. You can have it right now. You can name him as Lord of your life. You can have your sins washed away in baptism. If you have a need, please let it be known while we stand and as we sing.